So we're in Jonah chapters 3 and 4 tonight. We're going to, Lord willing, finish up the book of Jonah. And um, when I'm done with the fourth chapter, don't look at your watch and think, wow, he finished early. You're not getting off that easy. Because I actually am going to summarize the whole book with a few principles. So even though the time might say, hey, it looks a little early. I believe in miracles, but not that one. Uh, we will be finishing on time, though, but, uh, but I just felt led to kind of summarize the book by listing out five principles from the book of Jonah. So let's, let's kind of uh, get a jumping start again and be reminded of where we are at this point. If those of you who take notes like doing those things, uh, the book of Jonah can be kind of easily divided into these four chapter titles. Chapter 1 is about Jonah and the storm. Chapter 2 is about Jonah and the fish. Again, it doesn't say whale in the book of Jonah. It is the Hebrew word dag, like tag. What a big fish. That's how we remember it. Chapter 3, Jonah and the city. Chapter 4, Jonah and the Lord. And so um, as we finish up the book of Jonah today, for those of you who haven't been with us, just by way of quick reminder, he's one of the minor prophets. The last 12 books of the Old Testament are all the minor prophets. He ministers around the time 780 B.C., his name in Hebrew is Yonah, meaning dove. And again, this book is basically a narrative about how he disobeyed God when God told him to go to the city of Nineveh, which was at the time the capital city of the ancient Assyrian Empire, which is located in what is today Iraq. God tells him to go 600 miles to the ancient city of Nineveh that he might preach the good news of repentance, that people would get saved, Jonah doesn't want to do that. He disobeys God. That's what chapter 1 is about. And then as a result of his disobedience, uh, there's a storm at sea because he takes a ship to sail to Tarshish, which was as far west in the known world at the time as he could possibly go away from Nineveh. God then brings a storm and also a great fish. And when the sailors throw Jonah overboard... The fish that God has provided swallows him, preserves his life. It is a miracle. Skeptics and, and others will disagree and obviously mock what we believe to be true, but God has done it to preserve Jonah's life because God's not done with Jonah, and God is going to give Jonah a second chance. Now, why did he disobey God? And this is an important point to reemphasize because as we look at these closing chapters, this has everything to do with Jonah's attitude. He's going to cop an attitude at the end of this book, so we have to understand why. And this is actually pretty intriguing when you think about it because Jonah is writing his own narrative here. And he's going to tell us, he's going to give us a glimpse into his own bad attitude and his own heart. I don't know if you've ever done some bad things in your life. I'm sure you've done two, maybe three. But if you had to write a book about your shortcomings and the way that you disobeyed God, you'd probably leave out the juicy stuff. Nobody wants their own bad story to be read by millions of people for centuries to follow. But Jonah's that honest, and he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen these things, even though it exposes his own bad attitude, his own sinful heart, his own disobedience, his own prejudice towards other people. He's going to put it all out for us right here in the pages of this book so we can learn and take note of a lot of things, and particularly in that area. The reason that he disobeys God and runs is because he just flat out does not like the Assyrians. He does not like the Ninevites, the people who live in the city of Nineveh. And at this time, it's a very populous city. Anywhere from 500,000 to a million people, it is estimated, live in Nineveh at this time. We know that because in chapter 4, it tells us how many children were there, 120,000. We'll get to that in a little bit. 
And he is avoiding this calling of God because he has deep-seated prejudice towards the Assyrian people. Now, we don't want to um, condone that kind of a thing, but we can understand why he has some of it. And the reason he has that kind of a hard heart towards the Assyrian people is because they were some of the most ruthless, wicked, brutal people, violent people on the face of the earth at the time. They made the, the Taliban look like Girl Scouts. I'm telling you, you look at history of the Assyrian people, these are some really ruthless people. And Jonah basically is saying, I don't want to be a part of your plan, God, to save these wicked people. For example, taken from some of the ancient uh, records that have been recovered from ancient Assyria, uh, this was the, uh, the record of war that was recorded on two different occasions, and quoting from... Uh, the translation of the ancient Assyrian, it said this. This was one soldier's record of uh, his conquest in ancient Assyria. Quote, I destroyed, I demolished, I burned. I took their warriors prisoner and impaled them on stakes before their cities, flayed the nobles, as many as had rebelled, and spread their skins out on the piles of dead corpses. Many of the captives I burned in a fire. Many I took alive. From some I cut off their hands. From others I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out the eyes of many of the soldiers. End quote. There was another ancient Assyrian um, manuscript that was discovered, and here's another record. Quote, I slew 260 fighting men. I cut off their heads. And made pyramids thereof. I built a wall before the great gates of the city. I flayed the chief men of the rebels, and I covered the wall with their skins. Some of them were enclosed alive in the bricks of the wall. Some of them were crucified on stakes along the wall. I caused a great multitude of them to be flayed in my presence, and I covered the wall with their skins. I gathered together the heads in the form of crowns and their pierced bodies in the form of garlands, end quote. This is an ancient manuscript that's been recovered that documents one soldier's great conquest and the way that the Assyrians were so brutal in dealing with their prisoners of war, the nations that they took captive. They would fillet pregnant women to kill their babies and also raped them. Many nations would record how they would commit suicide, towns and villages, when they would see the Assyrian army coming because they thought it would be better to take their own lives than to fall into the hands of the Assyrians. And God calls them in chapter 1 wicked. They are wicked people, brutal, violent people. And God says to Jonah, I want you to go minister to these people. Here's an ancient relief that had been discovered. And if you can make it out, the, in the center, the Assyrian, there's an Assyrian guy beheading one of his captives. I mean, this is the kind of thing that they were known for. They were ruthless. They were brutal. They, they stopped at nothing to make conquest of nations and to brutally attack, dismember, and maim and uh, slice open and impale on stakes their victims. And um, 
This is the reason why Jonah runs from God. This is, this is challenging stuff for us. I'm going to talk more about it when we close uh, the study this evening. But So when he disobeys, God sends then this storm. And uh, as a result, the storm, then the fish, and the fish swallows him. Now, chapter 2 that we looked at last week, just to kind of look at the last couple of verses of chapter 2, Jonah is praying from inside the belly of this great fish. And he says in verse 8, and again, the whole of chapter 2 is basically a compilation of about 10 different psalms. So Jonah obviously knows the word. And he's taken it to heart, he's memorized it, and the whole prayer basically is a compilation of a bunch of psalms. But in verse 8 here of chapter 2, he says this. He says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Now, there's a lot that can be said about idols and idolatry. But I think to be specific here, the one thing that Jonah is talking about when you think about what worthless idols might he be referring to, I think it has everything to do with himself. Because I think what he realizes is he has made himself an idol because he has determined that he's going to do what he wants to do. He's going to go where he wants to go. He's going to live how he wants to live. And in essence, he's put himself on the throne. So he's made himself God. He's made an idol out of his own life. And therefore, he realizes inside the belly of this great fish as he's praying to God, he's like, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. I've made myself an idol. I've put myself on the throne. I've made myself in charge of my life. And he repents of this because he realizes I'm forfeiting the grace of God because God is a gracious God. But so long as I have myself on the throne, how can I expect to enjoy the good grace and favor of God? And we need to all understand this because there's a little bit of all of us that like to put self on the throne. That we want to be in charge of our own lives. We want to say what we want to say. We want to do what we want to do. We want to go where we want to go. And we don't always stop and consider, what does God want me to say? Where does he, what does He want me to do? Where does He want me to go? Lord, my life is on the altar in sacrifice and service to You. Romans 12, 1, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Lord, you are king. You're on the throne. I just want to follow you, serve you, obey you, do what you say, go where you say. Our whole lives should be dedicated to his lordship. So when we put self on the throne, that's the worst form of idolatry. We've now made ourselves the master of our destiny, the captain of our ship instead of the Lord. And Jonah, I think, is realizing the greatest form of idolatry that he has been practicing or that he is guilty of is putting himself on the throne. God said, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, no. And he goes a whole different direction. But God, in the end, is always going to get a hold of us. And then in verse 10, as chapter 2 ends, it says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Wouldn't that have been an awesome scene to be there to see? I mean, just like this, this, like a cannon being, like a, a cannonball being shot out of a cannon, here comes Jonah just being upchucked from the water onto dry land. You talk about projectile vomiting. If any of you have kids or you've ever been around little babies, it's crazy how these little tiny cuddly little, oh, Gucci, 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 little tiny babies, they're like no bigger than this, and they can like shoot a rocket out of their mouth across a room. It's crazy. Remember, all of our kids, they just had like, I don't know what it was, just like cannon gut. That you could just get the least little bit and they'd be smiling 
but they'd have that smile like a dog. You know when a dog eats garbage and it starts to get a frown that's like going down like... <laughs> and all of our kids would get this. They'd be like... And you know, here it comes. And then just... Oh, anyway, I'm sorry. I'm going to... I'm ruining probably some of your dinners, but here's, here's the thing. He just gets projectile vomited out onto dry land. Here he comes. And now chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim, it to, the message, proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed. It's the first time that he's obeying in this whole story. Jonah obeyed. It's probably a reluctant obedience, but nevertheless he obeys. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. This is about 600 miles. Now, he was in Joppa, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean in Israel, when he took the ship on the way to Tarshish. He gets in the storm in the middle of the Mediterranean, then he gets swallowed by the fish. Now, wherever, wherever the fish barfs him out, we don't really know. But if it's near Joppa again, the journey from Joppa to Nineveh is at least 600 miles. This guy's going to have a long walk to think about what just happened. And again, remember, because we documented some case histories of people who had actually been in the past couple of weeks on Wednesday nights. We talked about documented case histories of people who have actually been swallowed by uh, great fish, by, by blue whale in particular, and, uh, and how they survived. But when they were cut open, they were basically the acid of the, of the, uh, the whale's stomach bleached them white, and, and uh, burned off the hair. So, I, you know, you got to picture Jonah coming out looking white and bald. Really white. Really, really super white and bald. I mean, you know, if I saw some guy super white and bald walking into my town preaching about the Lord, I think I'd listen too. What's your story? I just got barfed out of a big fish. I think I'm going to listen to the guy. He's going to go 600 miles to Nineveh. And it says, now this, it says verse 3. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. Most scholars believe that that means it took three days to actually walk around the whole uh, city of Nineveh. That's how big it was. Verse 4, on the first day Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed. Now, here's his whole message. Count it up. It's eight words. This is the entire message that he preaches. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's it. He just goes around for three days, just walking around. Forty more days, Nineveh will be overturned. And that's enough, because when you're just obedient to do the part that God tells you, He'll do the rest. And God begins to move the hearts of the Ninevites, because verse 5 says, The Ninevites believed God. That's all Jonah had to do. And the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now stop and just consider this for a moment. This, this is an incredible miracle because all Jonah does is he preaches an eight-word message. That's all he does, like a broken record, walking around. Forty more days and then it will be overturned. Forty more days and then it will be overturned. And God uses that, meets it with His Holy Spirit, and translates it into the hearts of people, and they fall under conviction such that the entire town, the entire city, again, we don't know for sure how many, but if it's at least 500,000 conservatively, they all repent. They all repent. Consider, for example, Noah in contrast. The Bible says that Noah, and Peter tells us in his epistle, was a preacher of righteousness. Noah goes around preaching for about, when you do the math about the time that God told him to build the ark until it was actually completed, they set sail in the flood. About 120 years. 
Noah is preaching for 120 years. The Bible says not a single convert. Barely his own family was saved. And nobody else climbs onto the ark. 120 years you're going around preaching. And all Jonah does, three days, eight words. And God takes that and he moves the hearts of the Ninevites and they declare a fast, all of them from the greatest to the least, and it says they believed God. They put on sackcloth. Now, sackcloth was the garment of mourners. And in these ancient times, it would usually be made of goat hair. Really, I want you to imagine the thickest, roughest, itchiest goat hair clothing and put that on. And it, and it was their way of reminding themselves, we are suffering. We're feeling the suffering. We feel terrible. And they, they're trying to, they're coming in touch with their own um, remorse over their sin. And so the sackcloth was just a usual garment that people would put on in those days to kind of give them a tangible reminder that they are in mourning and in grieving. They are mourning, they are grieving over their own sin. They put on the sackcloth here. Verse 6 says, When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Picture this. You're the most powerful man of the most powerful empire on the planet at this time. You're the king of Assyria. And you are so gripped with your own sin and the sin of your country that you cover yourself with sackcloth, you sit down in the dust, take off your royal robes, and then, verse 7, he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. And here it is. God bless you. It's, it's, it says, by the decree of the king of his nobles. Now, check it out. Here's the decree. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Here's the fasting part. Do not let them eat or drink But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. That's a funny thing. I mean, look at that slowly. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth? Look, I don't know if you're one of these people. Don't tell me if you are, because then I'm going to judge you in my heart. If you're one of these people that, like, walk a poodle with a sweater, stop that. Stop it right now. Because that's just sin. I'm telling you what. A dog in a sweater. It's not right. Okay? God gave them a sweater already. It's called fur. But I'm picturing this right now because the king is actually saying, let every man and even the animals put on sackcloth. I'm just seeing cows in sweaters. Can you picture this with me? There are dogs and cats in sweaters. But that's what he's like. I want I want this rough, coarse, thick fabric to be over men and beast. And then he goes on. He says, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Now look, what in the world would it be like if in our country the President of the United States took off his suit, put on just a sweatshirt, sat down in the dust, issued a proclamation throughout the United States saying, you know what, we are guilty of a lot of sin. And we need to fall on our face before God and we need to repent. I mean, it would not be wonderful, but we can't even imagine it, really. So when you think about the scene here, I I want you to envision, can you imagine what it would be like in our own nation 
if the president called our nation to repentance, to fall on our face before God and to confess our sin before him. What an amazing thing that that would be. And that's what's happening here. The most powerful king on the planet, the king of Assyria, issues this proclamation, this decree. I want everybody to fast. I want you to put on sackcloth to remember you're in mourning. And I want you to urgently, that's the word he uses there in verse 8, urgently call on God. Give up evil ways and their violence. And then he says, who knows, God may yet relent. Some of your Bibles in King James will say repent. And with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Now, you're going to see that same word. Again, King James says repent. NIV says relent. We have to understand that in the Old English in King James, it doesn't mean repent in the way that we think of repent because God has nothing to repent of. It's not like he sinned and done something wrong and he has to repent. But to relent, or in this strict sense of the Hebrew, to repent, is the Hebrew word nacham, and it means to sigh with relief. I want you to picture God who is sighing with relief because that's the idea behind this word, that he is not going to bring about the destruction that was theirs but he will choose to accomplish his purpose in another way, and that other way is mercy rather than wrath. So he relents. It's a sigh of relief. That's what the literal Hebrew word means, nakam, to sigh with relief. Picture God sighing with relief. Why? Because God doesn't want any to perish. He wants everybody to come to repentance. God wants everybody to be saved. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. That is not God's will, intention, or desire whatsoever. Jesus said in Matthew that hell was originally designed for Satan, for the devil, and his angels. Those who have rebelled. Hell was never originally created for man. Man goes there because he joins the forces behind evil in rebellion against God. But that was never God's heart, that man should ever perish. And so God sighs this relief, if you will. Nakam. He relents. He's not going to bring the disaster upon them, though that they deserve it. Because they have repented. They've turned to God. They have forsaken their ways. They're seeking Him. And the king knows this because he says, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And then verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, that's what repent is all about. That's what that word really means for us. When we turn from our evil ways, that's repenting. When we decide I'm not going to sin anymore with God's grace, I'm going to yield my life to him. Repenting is forsaking those sinful choices, that sinful life, and going the other direction. That's repenting. So they have turned from their evil ways, and God saw this, and he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. In Exodus chapter 34, 6 and 7, it says this, The Lord, the Lord the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That's the nature of the Lord. That's who He is. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7 The Lord speaking through Jeremiah said, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent 
and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. That's what's going on here. The Ninevites deserved God's judgment, but they, rel- they repent of their sins, so God relents and does not bring the disaster upon them that He had intended. And so, chapter 4, But Jonah, here's where he cops an attitude, But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Wait, 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 this is a prophet of God. You've just circled a city for three days, preaching your eight-word message, and the entire city has repented. The king has issued a decree. Why aren't you thrilled about this? Why aren't you happy, Jonah? Why aren't you rejoicing? Why aren't you feeling, feeling like, well, God kind of used me, didn't he? You know, I'm going to start Jonah Ministry Incorporated. Why isn't, he, why isn't any of that happening in his life? Well, it's not happening. He's angry here because he didn't like the Ninevites. He doesn't like these people. And God has chosen to forgive them. So notice, he prays, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord. Oh, Lord. I'm going to kind of say it the way I think Jonah prayed it, okay? Here it comes. Oh, Lord. Is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, oh, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Oh, please, Jonah. Come on, so dramatic here. But that's how he's feeling. He's like, I would rather die than to see these people forgiven. He's like, God, I knew you were merciful. I knew you were going to forgive these people. (laughs) That's why I didn't want to go in the first place. I didn't want to go and preach to them because I knew you'd be like, oh, I love them. Oh, I forgive them. (laughs) So I'm wanting to get on a boat and go as far away because, God, I knew you're so merciful like this. And look at him. He's just got this attitude. He's like this middle school girl. Nothing against middle school girls, I'm just saying. But So he says, verse 4, But the Lord replied, this is what the Lord says, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out, now he's sulking, look at this, and he sat down at a place east of the city. He like, hmm. sits down. And there he made himself a shelter. The picture of this guy. I mean, he's just, he's got this bad attitude. Like, I knew you wouldn't, I'm just going to build this shelter. I just, you know, he's just barking like this and whining and complaining. He builds himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Now, here's what he's doing. You guys get this? He's like, oh, man, I knew God's merciful. But maybe, maybe if it's a really good day and they mess up, God's going to smoke them. So I'm going to make myself a little shelter here so I can watch the whole city burn. Burn, baby, burn. That's what he's doing. He's perched over the city on a little hill, hoping that God is actually going to change his mind or the people are going to mess up, and he's, after all, going to watch them all burn. He waited to see what happened to the city. Verse 6, Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. I mean, this guy's manic. I mean, one minute he's angry, and the next minute he's like, ah, I'm so happy. He's angry, then he's happy. He's angry, and he's happy. He's like, oh, look at this, a little vine. Oh, a little viney over my head, verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God's going to get the last laugh here. At dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's little white bald head so that he grew faint 
and you wanted to die, and you said it would be better for me to die than to live. There he repeats it again. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You were angry, then you're happy, now you're angry again. What's up with this? But God said to Jonah, here's the question of the hour. He says, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. He's talking back to assassin God. He says, I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well, in sweaters. Should, and then God says, should I not be concerned about that great city? Now, your attention for a moment. Here's what's happening. What was the deal with the vine? What was the deal with God providing shade over, over Jonah's head? Because God was trying to teach him a tangible, visible lesson about mercy. God is saying, all right, now look, you had nothing to do with this vine. That was my doing. And I decided to help you out, to be merciful to you, to be kind to you. I provided shade for your, for your head so the sun wouldn't scorch you and you wouldn't be all burned. But then when he sends the worm and makes the vine go away and it withers up and shrivels, then Jonah all of a sudden realizes he's exposed to the elements, he's, he, the east wind and the, and the heat of the day and what is going on here. And God is showing, look, it is my prerogative to have mercy to those whom I have mercy. You enjoyed the vine while it was shading your head because you loved what I did for you. So what gives you the right to be so angry because I am being merciful to other people? And Jonah is not understanding this, but I think he does eventually get it. And it's the reason why this letter ends so abruptly. Doesn't this book end so abruptly? I mean, he says all this and then... Jonah just ends writing it by saying, quoting the Lord, shall I not be concerned about that great city? I think that, that there was some point, obviously, after this story, Jonah pens these words inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he's just convicted at this point. He's just like, I have nothing more to say. God is right. He, he's, he, it's his prerogative to be merciful to people that I don't think he should be merciful to. It's his prerogative to be loving towards people I don't think are all that lovable. But God does that for me. God does that for you. And so God does it for those whom he chooses to be merciful to. So don't complain about the vine. That's an expression of God's mercy for you, Jonah. And God is challenging him about this. He says, you have no right to be angry. I can be merciful to whom I want to be merciful. And then he speaks here in verse 11 again. This is where we get the counting of the children. Because although it doesn't use the word child or children, when it talks about 120,000, it defines who these people are. They cannot tell their right hand from their left. So this is a reference to children. That's why most scholars say if there's 120,000 children, there has to be, when you multiply it uh, and include the parents, at least 500,000 people in the city at this particular time. And they all repent. And they all turn to God. Now, unfortunately, when you get to the book of Nahum, about 150 years later, the Ninevites are going to be steeped in sin again, and they're going to be destroyed. But they do turn, and for 150 years, they are preserved, when otherwise they would have been destroyed. Because of God's mercy. And there's an entire couple of generations that will not experience the wrath of God because a generation turns towards God and leaves a new heritage for those children. Now, here's just what I want to share in the last closing couple of minutes about this whole book because I think that there are five important points for us to grasp from this book. For those of you who take notes, here's the first one. Here's the first point. This is a story to remind us that we can run, but we can't hide from God. I mean, Jonah got this 
directive from God. He decided, I'm not going to do that, and I'm going to run, and God went after him. Again, Psalm 139, we've quoted it through this book, where the psalmist writes about, where can I go from your spirit, Lord? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, you are there. If I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. There's no place I can go, Lord, to escape from you. If some of you are running from him right now, you just need to know, he'll catch up with you. You can't outrun God. God loves you enough that he will pursue you. And I mean that sincerely in a loving pursuit. In Psalm 23, it's a psalm that we often quote at funerals, but I think it's an often neglected psalm, the the 23rd psalm. But at the end of the 23rd psalm, it says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Everybody's heard that, right? But the actual language in the Hebrew is a military term, and it reads like this. Surely goodness and mercy will hunt you down, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's not that it follows us. The goodness and mercy of the Lord actually pursues us because God loves us so much that He's never content to allow us to be as we are. So with Jonah, he's on the run, but God was like, you might be able to run, but you can't hide. And if you're in a place right now where you'd say, you know what, my life, I'm kind of on the run from the Lord, and I'm not in the right good place with Him. He loves you so much, He will continue to go after you that you might have that loving fellowship with him. That's the first thing to understand from this story. Here's the second thing. The second thing is this. God is a God of second chances. I love the way that chapter 3 begins. Look at it again there in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. God is a God of second chances. You know, it could have been a very different book written by somebody else. The fish swallowed Jonah, the end. And God called another prophet to go to Nineveh. That could have been the way it worked. But I love the way Jonah writes that because he's expressing, God gave me a second chance. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Whenever I think about God of second chances, I always think, of course, in the Bible about Peter. Because there he is, one of Jesus' disciples, and he... And he denies knowing Christ three times. Didn't even know him. Says, no, I don't even know this guy. And yet after Jesus rises from the dead, he restores Peter for ministry, so much so that Peter is the first one to preach the evangelical message of the New Testament church in Acts chapter 3. And it says about 3,000 people get saved that day. God didn't just say, well, you know, Peter, you denied Jesus, so we're done with you. And in fact, even before Peter denied Jesus... Jesus said to him in Luke 22, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned, Jesus, notice that Jesus already predicts that Peter will come back. When you have returned, I want you to go strengthen your brothers. Jesus tells him that straight up. Satan's wanting to sift you. Satan wants to steal you from the kingdom. Satan wants to rob you of everything I have. But I've prayed for you, Jesus said, that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned, I want you to go and I want you to restore and minister to your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. God is a God of second chances. Some of you are here tonight. You know that you've not been living your life right. You feel like you've blown it 10, 20, 30 times. You've lost count. 
God is a God of second chances. That's what he continues to do. That's what he will always do. Here's the third thing. Anyone, anyone can repent and be saved. Anyone. I've been saying this through our study of Jonah, and I'm going to reiterate it one last time. We often have an unspoken list of people or types of people that we think can't be saved or in a judgmental sense shouldn't be saved. You say, no, 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 that's not me. You think about it. The way that we look at people who have committed certain crimes, we've written them off. The emotion is raw and rightly so because of what happened the, the, the anniversary was just yesterday on 9-11 and we instantly want to dismiss certain people we instantly categorize certain criminals certain people have done this and they've done that and we think to ourselves nah they could never turn you know one of the greatest moves of the spirit of God right now that is happening is happening in Iraq and Iran the number of Muslims who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ we are seeing more Muslims turning to faith in Jesus Christ in the last five years than the previous 50 combined. The Lord is moving in a mighty and miraculous way. And we cannot allow our own, whatever it might be, heard, hurt, prejudice, pride, whatever it is, think to ourselves that there are certain people that can't or shouldn't be saved. Anyone who repents can be saved. Anyone. I said it last week, I'm going to say it again. We always want mercy for ourselves and justice for everybody else. But we all need mercy equally from God. Anyone can be saved. That's why for, in 2 Peter 3, 9, it says that God wants no one to perish but all to come to repentance because that's God's heart for all of us. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. It's not limited. To a certain select few people, God is no respecter of persons. He accepts people from all nations, tribes, language, and tongue. That is His heart. Jesus died for all that all might be saved. It is an open invitation to all people. Jonah expresses his own heart here, and thankfully so. Because if we can relate to it in that sense where he doesn't like the Ninevites and doesn't want God to save him, and if you have anybody in your heart or mind that you're thinking God shouldn't or couldn't or wouldn't, you need to ask the Lord to forgive you of that because the truth is God wants all people to be saved and none to perish. Here's the fourth thing. Number four. God has a special love for children. I love this part about this story here that is often overlooked. It's this last part here. God points out to Jonah that there are 120,000 people who can't tell their left hand from their right. And he's talking about children. That there's always this special place in the heart of God towards children. And there should be with us. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, when the Israelites were guilty of sinning against God, they did not enter the promised land, but God made the promise for their children. In Deuteronomy 1, then he says, For your children, the next generation, they shall inherit the land. He made special provision for those who did not yet understand right from wrong. And we see this throughout the Bible. That's why I think also Jesus emphasizes the special place of children. In Mark 10, 15, he says, Anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then he's even 
more um, harsh in the sense of confrontational about the protection concerning children in Mark chapter 9 when he talks about if anyone, if anyone causes a little child to sin, it would be better for that person to have a millstone hung around his neck to be thrown into the sea. Now, first time I went to Israel, I saw an ancient millstone. I don't know what you ever thought about a millstone. I kind of thought like a hand millstone, like a little, you know, like a dinner plate. These things are huge. It would take animals to churn the millstones to grind the grain. So Jesus is saying, this is something that is going to sink you to the bottom of the ocean. That's how much I love and protect children. God has a special place in his heart for kids. So should we. Last thing. God's mercy is greater than his wrath. And that's an important point from this story. God's mercy is greater than his wrath. In John 3.17, Jesus said, the famous John 3.16, For God so loved the world that uh, uh, whoever believes in him, that he sent his only begotten Son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then Jesus adds, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. That's the heart of God. He wants people to be saved. His mercy is greater than his wrath. The Bible says in James 2.13, it says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And in Ezekiel chapter 33.11, God said through the prophet Ezekiel, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they might turn and their turn from their ways and live. That's God's heart. And that's his heart for us as well. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, we thank you for this very honest story that Jonah would pen for us, even revealing and exposing his own heart. The way that he had written off a whole group of people, the Ninevite people. And yet you were merciful to Jonah. Even though he disobeyed you, you called him a second time. And he obeyed and he went. And people responded. And you forgave. We thank you for this story, Lord. May these things be reminders to us that we might be able to run, but we can't hide from you. Thank you that your mercy and goodness will pursue us, will hunt us down. Maybe some tonight, Lord, have been running, you know. And maybe tonight, Lord, is the night that you would call them and that they would respond to you. We thank you that you're our Father with open arms, ready to receive all who would run to you. We thank you that you're a God of second chances. No matter how many times we may have failed you, you stand ready to forgive and to continue to use us once again. Lord, remind us that anyone can repent and be saved, that we would not have a small or even large checklist of people that we think shouldn't or couldn't be saved, but that we might remember that Jesus died for all. For all, Lord. Thank you for what you're doing around the world to bring people to the saving knowledge of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for children. We pray, Lord, for your continued provision and care for children who 
don't have a mom or a dad, those who have been discarded or abused, those who have been neglected, Lord. Minister your grace to their hearts and give us continued burdens for children in a way that would minister to them your love and your grace. And Father, we thank you that your mercy is greater than your wrath, that, Lord, all of us deserve your judgment, but we are thankful for your mercy that is greater than your wrath, that you want none to perish but all to come to repentance. May we take to heart, Lord, this book, that we would be mindful of these things in our own lives. We praise you. We thank you, Father. Now, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, just as I close in prayer, if you know tonight that you've been running from the Lord and you're not in a right place with Him, the Lord tonight would just kind of speak to your heart just quietly in His still, small voice about how much He loves you, how much He forgives you. I just encourage you to just pray a simple prayer and just return to the Lord tonight. Just pray something like this. Just say, Jesus, you know I've been on the run, but tonight I surrender to you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be Lord of my life, that you would help me to forsake those evil things that I sometimes get involved with, that I would follow after you, Lord. Give me a heart for the things of God, that I would run to you as my loving Father, that I would cling to you as my Lord, who died on a cross for my sins. In Jesus' name, Lord, we all pray these things, thankful for who you are. We give you praise and thanks and all the glory unto your name. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen and amen.